Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So today, uh, for the message, uh, it's not, I mean, it's a message, but I'm really just kind of reflecting on some things that God, I feel, has highlighted to me this past year personally, and I believe they're really important for us as a church as well. I feel like the first Sunday of the New Year is a good time to do that, because even if you don't make New Year's Year's resolutions, uh, we can't help but think about what the year in the past was and what the year coming coming up is going to be like, and and some stuff kind of spurred these thoughts. Many of you may not know this, and I actually started a doctoral program this last August, and so it forced me to read uh, several thousand pages, and I had to distill that thinking down into about 160 pages of writing this past term, and it just left me with a lot of thoughts. Did I learn a lot of new stuff uh, this last fall doing that? I'd have to say not really. Uh, but I think the more we need, read and the more we live the more life becomes less about learning new stuff and it becomes a whole lot more about becoming clearer on what we know, on learning to apply more thoroughly and deeply what we already know. And I think it's the same thing with church. If if we expect to come here and learn a lot of new stuff and that that criteria of learning a lot of new stuff is the primary criteria by which we determine whether church is suitable, then depending on your awareness of Christianity and the Bible, constantly learning something brand new may last five years, may last ten years, until it seems like most things that we hear, we've heard before. But the amazing thing about life, and especially about the gospel, is that we need to regularly be reminded to reflect and to apply what we know more consistently, more clearly, more broadly to a broader range of circumstances and more deeply. So while it's not a main point of the message today, a kind of a side bonus thrown in in is the purpose of the church is to be a community that helps us stay focused and helps us go deep in what is most important. Most of it we already know. The older I get, the simpler knowing and following God becomes. But simple doesn't mean easy. It's kind of like in writing. You can write a jumbled mess with a whole lot of words really easily, but becoming clear and becoming focused enough to make something simple and understandable and workable in life is hard work. Think about it in your own life, in your leadership, in your own life, in your your work life, in your leadership at work. You learn things like the habits of staying focused on the goal, uh, managing your calendar efficiently, running meetings better, knowing how to say yes to and what to say no to, leading change, leading a team, just doing things better, all sorts of different things we learn. But when life is running hard and fast, you don't always do those things that you know, do you? You need to regularly refocus because you don't always have time to think and time to prepare so you don't always remember to do things well. You find yourself getting lost in details and sidetracks, and we just need to refocus and we need to go deeper. And the same thing happens in our personal lives as well. When parenting, for example, we often set goals knowing that our child needs to grow in X this coming year. 
But the entire, the, but, but, but life is about the entire alphabet, not just about X. And when life gets going, you see, oh man, Y, H, and M, they all need to grow on those. And F screams the loudest. And so we, we get six months down the road and realize we didn't do X, which was what we felt like God was saying was the most important priority in our parenting. Like many of you, I'm incredibly proud of my kids. But I also see how I let life cloud some of the simple priorities in life when I didn't parent as well as I wish I would have. One simple thing is I didn't teach them how to use tools and fix things like I wished I would have. And that's, that's an important skill when you grow up, isn't it? I didn't do a very good job of that. I think this is how most, import, most parents feel. Even parents feel like there's so many things that we should have done. Life in so many ways, is simple. Yet keeping priorities balanced, staying focused is hard. If we don't stay focused on the right things, we don't fulfill the goals we long for. We find ourselves living less fulfilling lives than we desire. In fact, we maybe find ourselves living tough and disappointing lives at times because we don't stay focused. I was talking to a friend recently who has been, by all accounts, very successful in life. He was talented. He's capable. He turned down a full-ride scholarship for music to, and instead played Division I sports on a team that ended up fourth in the nation. He became a successful businessman, raised a great family, a leader in the church. In a recent conversation, he was reflecting on how so much of his life, he spent his life being so driven for the next goal, the next marker of success, to be good enough, to be successful enough. He was just constantly pushing in life. And lately, he said, God has been inviting him to live a more peaceful and joyful life, to live not from a place of being driven, but from a place of internal rest, contentment, satisfaction, a heart motivation that allows him to stay, to enjoy both the downtime and also to engage in work, fulfilling the positive desire to achieve without being so driven for the next marker of success. He said to me, I'm discovering a whole new quality of life, of being content in God's love and being content with myself and with life in the present. Aren't we all a bit like him? Now and then I notice myself struggling with downtime, feeling like I need to be doing something knowing I work way too many hours, but still feeling like I need to be busy and I need to be accomplishing something. Anyone else ever feel that way here? Yeah, I got a few hands. Or maybe you don't struggle with downtime, but you do struggle with silence and solitude. You need something to occupy your mind and your thoughts, otherwise your thoughts will go places that aren't fun and relaxing. Do you remember the last time you had any extended time of solitude or silence? Where did your thoughts and your emotions go during that time? See, I think that inability for us to feel okay in silence or in doing nothing, our inability to live from a place of rest and contentment, reflects a motivation that the gospel has not yet fully shaped in our lives. We're still trying to prove we are good enough rather than living securely in God's perfect love for us and, our, and, and His salvation for us. What I want for myself, and what I want for all of us, is to go deeper in learning to follow and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit 
not from an internal place that is full of pressure and musts and shoulds and drivenness, but from that place of rest. That rest of knowing we are so loved, so perfectly secure in God. Not that we must do something to be good enough or be accepted, not doing, but doing things from a joy of knowing that we are already accepted and loved so that we get to be part of the cool stuff God wants to do in this earth. To live in that place of rest, joy, and contentment rather than from that place of drivenness and consistently needing to do more to prove oneself. The need to let the gospel and penetrate our lives, this doctrine of the gospel of justification sink more deeply into the crevices of our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our emotions is so important. So let's frame this discussion going forward with with a quote from an early church father, Tertullian, who wrote, Just as Christ was crucified between two thieves, so the doctrine of justification or the gospel is ever crucified between two opposite errors. When we step to the left out of the gospel, we land in one error. When we step to the right, we land in another error. And these two errors are first, uh, it's a big word called antinomianism, which means anti-law, no rules, relativism, hedonism. It goes by the mantras of live and let live, do what you want, no big deal. Or we step the other direction into the error of legalism or moralism, seeking to live a morally superior life to others, a kind of a self-righteous religion. Throughout history, we too often see the church's response to the gospel being lived out and applied through these two errors, rather than applied in a way that we live freely like Jesus actually invites us to live. Another way to think about this is the way Tim Keller does. He says, one error is living in irreligion, and the other is living through religion. Now, both errors can undoubtedly be seen in the church, but they can also be seen in people who aren't Christian at all. I was listening to a liberal atheist academic whose field of expertise is studying how religions start, form, and affect culture. Kind of an interesting talk by him. In his talk, this liberal atheist critiqued the destructiveness of liberal progressive critical race theory. Now, please understand there's many forms of critical race theory out there. He was talking about liberal progressive critical race theory. And what he did in his talk as a liberal atheist was demonstrate that the liberal progressive CRT meets every criterion of being a religion. Then he pointed out that's one of the reasons why cancel culture is so strong. Self-righteous moralists, whatever variety they are, feel threatened by those who think and behave differently and therefore need to condemn and destroy anyone who thinks differently. They need to cancel them. Even if they agree on the problem, but they don't agree on how to solve the problem, they still feel a need to cancel them. See, that's what legalism does. It alienates relationships, creating the morally superior who are good and right and the morally inferior who are evil and wrong. On the other hand, the other error of how one responds to the gospel is to believe that because Jesus paid for all of our sins, it doesn't really matter what we do. Obey when you like and don't when you don't want to. You hear this often when people say, hey, my sin is forgiven, God forgives me, it's no big deal. Your choice is your choice, live and let live. 
Now, like my friend who struggles with so much pressure to accomplish and do things, all of us struggle with the call of the Bible and of God for our lives to be obedient to him. If the Bible's call to obedience elicits shame and negative pressure in you, those feelings show that the gospel still needs to penetrate your heart and your mind more because God wants you to live from a place of rest, of peace, and of joy. Those of you who struggle with the moral boundaries of Christianity and like to emphasize grace and de-emphasize obedience, the problem with that is, for example, if you are consistently angry or consistently let yourself or others down by your imperfection and your sin, dismissing those behaviors with the phrase, oh, there's grace, no big deal, well, that isn't sufficient, and you know it isn't because it doesn't relieve you of the feelings of not being good enough. The gospel invites you to a powerful way to honestly deal with sin and failure in life, to be truly free of guilt and live in a depth of joy and a peace that you have yet to experience. And I want for all of us to feel passionate about obeying and following God, to feel connected to and passionate about our work to which God has called us and prepared for us, but to do it from a more gospel-influenced heart a different base of motivation that allows rest, contentment, even in the busyness and the pressure of life, to feel joy and contentment even when things are uncertain and unfinished. I want all of us to truly resolve the feelings we have from the failures we have in life, to meet our own exp- the failures to meet our own expectations, much less God's, in a way that we find peace that is sufficient to bring rest to our souls and meaning to our lives. And that is what the yellow center road of the diagram we showed earlier is all about. It's learning to live in relationship to God via the Holy Spirit, to follow, to obey the Holy Spirit from this internal foundation that is securely grounded in the gospel. And therefore, we obey and do all things in life for God out of joy, acceptance, love, and peace, and for no other reason. The illustration, it's imperfect because it's not like we're supposed to be a centrist politically. That's not what this, this diagram is supposed to be talking about. It isn't like there's just this slight significant difference of walking two inches out of this way and oops, you cross the line. The errors are entirely different from the gospel-centered way of life. So let's talk about that. In both religion and irreligion, the center of your life is you and what you think. Both errors are different ways of us self-justifying your value, our value, our worth, our goodness as a person. In religion, you do it by being better than other people, more right than others, or so you think. In religion, in irreligion, it's about you defining what is good for you and feeling, and feeling your passions and desires and meeting those things. Irreligion in the church looks like consumer Christianity. Faith is all about meeting my needs. I do church for what's in it for me. Over the last 40 years, the American church has positioned itself as a place to be entertained, discover your purpose, and plug into community. We've tried to draw people who didn't feel a need for God by meeting their other self-interest needs like better marriages, parenting, social justice causes. And those are all needs that God wants to meet. They're all needs that the gospel addresses. Yet the hope was 
to help people find God amid the entertainment. Today, it's difficult to imagine a different kind of church, isn't it? Certainly being boring is not a healthy goal. But there must be something more compelling, more life-transforming than entertainment. In his book, Sacred Roots, John Tyson writes, In a church-as-entertainment culture, instead of seeking to be equipped as disciples of Jesus, we are slowly formed into consumers and critics who give ratings and reviews on a local church's performance. But when we expect the church to entertain us, it limits the church's ability to challenge us. Entertainment rarely transforms. See, irreligion and legalism are all about me, about my self-justification, about my needs and my wants. A gospel-centered life is about God and what he has done. It's about Jesus coming and dying and rising and sending the Holy Spirit. It's about God, the creator of all, defining what is good and right and best and lovely and beautiful and purposeful. And we get to be part of that, not because we merit it or deserve it, but because God loves us and has forgiven us and is with us, empowering us through his Holy Spirit to become who he's called us to be. In religion and irreligion, you establish your identity in your own worth, one by moral superiority and the other by a concept of compassion that dismisses moral failings as no big deal because you don't ever want to tell anybody they're wrong because that's mean. It's kind of this false compassion. In a gospel-centered life, You are already given infinite love and worth by God, your Creator, so that you can feel fully secure in life and secure in your identity. Even as you continue to face the areas where you are weak and sinful and need to grow. In religion and irreligion, you are the one establishing your security in life. Am I enough better than others so that I can feel good about myself? Or am I giving myself enough pleasure to feel good about my life? Versus God saying, I love you. I accept you. You are my son and my daughter forever. And nothing can break my love and care for you. Both irreligion and religion corrupt and hide the gospel message. It comes up with this flimsy way of dealing with condemnation and guilt. In religion, God saves, but I still need to perform to be accepted, so I still got to do really good stuff and hide all the bad stuff. In irreligion, grace becomes this flimsy grace to dismiss wrong that we do rather than truly resolving guilt. In a gospel-centered life, The actual guilt of wrong is dealt with. The penalty is paid. The condemnation is rightly and properly removed. We don't have to make up ways to deal with guilt by creating our own scale that allows me to justify myself as doing more good than bad, which doesn't really ever address the bad at all. And we also don't have to ignore the guilt and say it's really no big deal. Only the gospel truly takes the guilt seriously and comprehensively deals with it, freeing us to live from a place of rest and peace and joy and contentment, even in the ongoing imperfection and sin, even in the process. So let's take a few moments just to kind of review the gospel. We're going to start in one of the most famous quoted passages, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
So the gospel is news about what has been done for us by Jesus to bring us back into right relationship with God and therefore engage true, the, the true good life more fully. We'll come back to John 3 in a second, but we're going to go to John's other letter, 1 John 3:14, where John notes that when we respond to the gospel, he says, we have passed from death to life. Now, this verb translated past means to cross over to a new status. In John 5:24, Jesus uses the same word saying, when we accept his word, his gospel, we cross over from living under a condemned death sentence to the freedom of life in him. The crossing over has nothing to do with what we've done or merited. It has everything to do with what God has done in Jesus to legally legally remove our guilt and condemnation and transfer you from the jail of your own sin and shortcomings to the freedom of a new life. The question I think we can all ask ourselves on a regular basis is, do we live in that status that God has given us? Back to John 3, the very next verse says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So whenever you feel like God's intent is anything other than good salvation for you, this scripture becomes an invitation for you to change your thoughts and your feelings. The next words distill the invitation of the choice we need to make to accept the gospel, to respond to the gospel. It says, whoever believes in him, Jesus, the Son of God, is not condemned. So not being condemned has to do with what? Does it have to do with you and what you have done, with you being good enough, with you making things right, with you responding well enough to God that you somehow merit his joy and acceptance? No. It has to do with believing in Jesus and what he has done for you, what he says you are, who he says you are, and how he says you need to live life. In our day, this word believe means something uh, we assent to being true, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's something that we feel compelled to obey or to do. But in the Jewish culture, and in the Greek word translated as believe, it means to be persuaded with the intent of following and doing the truth that you are persuaded about. It includes a committed intent to obey. Nor is salvation conditioned on how much faith you have. Think about it this way. If there are two people on a plane, both of them believe the plane is going to get them to their destination. One is totally relaxed and comfortable, and the other one is really nervous about flying. The one isn't saved any more than the other. They both get there, right? It doesn't matter how much faith they have, they're going to get there. Yet God does invite us to be that more relaxed person with more peace in our lives. John goes on to say, But whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Why? Because they have not believed in what? In the name of God's one and only Son. In other words, the power of God's love as expressed in the gospel is that God in Jesus has made it possible for every barrier of sin, every legal claim against you because of your sin, everything that alienates relationships to be forgiven or moved and put in a process of being restored. God has made things simple as seen in verse 18, which basically says the choice you have now is just one choice. Choose to love and follow him or not. 
the decision and coming into right relationship with God is no longer about all the sins we have done, all the areas that we need to fix, all the things that we need to grow in. Those things are already resolved by Jesus and what he has done. It is only about this one choice, follow or don't follow Jesus. Thus, to paraphrase verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, it's about me and your relationship with me. Your sin no longer condemns you because I've forgiven that. It's about me. If you reject me, then you condemn yourself by your rejection of me and my great love for you. Maybe this illustration helps us catch it even more. Picture two men on death row. Both men grew up rejected, abused, abandoned by every person in their life, and they sinned greatly enough to end up on death row. Picture Jesus standing at their doors, offering them the forgiveness that he has paid on their behalf and the freedom to start life fresh and clean, offering to adopt them into his family and walk with them to help them learn to love and live well. And one man says no and willingly gets up and walks to the lethal injection table, strapping himself in. No, I won't follow you out of this prison even though you've loved me and made a way for me. Now picture the other man realizing how great the love Jesus is offering to him and standing at the door offering him a release to be entirely free, no longer a a convict, pardoned if he will but respond and commit to following Jesus. Imagine the man accepting the invitation to become part of God's family as a full heir of all Jesus is and learning to live and love like Jesus. And the man says yes and walks out free with Jesus. What would that person's emotion be who says yes and who is freed? What kind of motivation might drive that person? How might that person feel about the opportunity to wake up and go to work each day, to hang out with family and friends and serve others, to see a sunrise or to take a walk at sunset? Think about this too. Have you ever had a huge decision that turned out good? And once it was made, all the anxiety and stress of the decision melted away and you felt just this joy and peace and everything was right in life. I remember feeling that way about a number of different things in the life, job transition, getting married, a a purchase of a new house. Now imagine if all of the decisions that were already made for you by Jesus are done. How would you change the way you approach those decision-making times? And how might that change the way you feel about whatever is set before you to do in life? Paul says we can trust God with that kind of confidence for future decisions. When he says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. He restates the gospel. Then he talks about this implication of the gospel. He says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to what? to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has already made all the preparations in advance for the good things you get to do with Him in this life. Just follow Him. Walk into them. Rest in that promise. How does that change the motivation of your heart toward the invitations in the Bible to obey God? to do things? How does that change the motivation of your heart about work and purpose in life? 
See, when the gospel fully seeps into the crevices of our thinking and our feelings, our attitudes and our emotions, we will find rest and peace and contentment and a joy that causes us to wake up each day and look at what God has called us to do in that day and see it differently, feel differently about it. Not through the driven need to perform or to succeed, not through the, I have to do this, but through the, I get to do this. I don't know about you, but I want to live more in that place. I want that to be more of the emotions and the thoughts and the attitudes of my heart. I hope it is for you too. See, I think this struggle to let the gospel change every aspect of the way we think, feel, and are motivated is the central journey we are on as his followers. The struggle we have is living in obedience to God from the right gospel-impacted motivation. Instead, if you're like me, we find ourselves striving way too often to prove ourselves, falling into moralism or legalism or religion. Or we find ourselves exhausted, disillusioned, feeling incapable, unloved, simply doing whatever pleases us. We fall into this irreligious, live and let live, do what you want, elevating our choice to the supreme right. Uh, we end up being focused on our self-needs. We end up becoming consumers. We end up becoming defensive. But God is inviting us to live a life that is so much more powerful, so much more beautiful, so much more full of positive emotions and attitudes. Do you genuinely believe that you are fully forgiven of everything, past, present, and future by God? Do you genuinely believe that you are so loved, so deeply loved by God that no matter whether you succeed or fail in what you're going to do today or tomorrow, you can freely come to Jesus with it all for his help and his salvation? Do you truly believe that you are an adopted son and daughter of God? with co-heir inheritance rights with Jesus, as Paul tells us. That you're secure, absolutely secure in God's love for eternity. Do you honestly believe God has good plans for you and what he asks you to do in obeying him and in what he asks you to do in life for a vocation or whatever else it is? Or do you see the stuff you have to do in life and work as a chore, something less than good? Do you believe the Holy Spirit is with you, there to give you wisdom and power and understanding? Do you believe God wants to speak to you and answer the questions that you have for Him and, and wants to speak to, through you to others, that He wants you to be a part of spreading His gospel to others? Or are you one that kind of believes that God only speaks to other people and not me? This year, let the gospel penetrate every motivation, every attitude of your heart and reshape your feelings and your motivations. Now, the gospel has an invitation with an invitation that requires a response from us. If you have never made that response to the gospel to repent, then receive God's forgiveness and choose to follow Him in all things. 
And Jesus is inviting you today to make that response, to begin a journey of knowing the power of the gospel that can transform everything about the way you live, feel, and think. My prayer for you, my prayer for me this year, is that we would all grow by leaps and bounds in living from a gospel-centered motivation in life. As we all together, today as a church family, we're going to close by, by celebrating communion. You have the extras there. If you didn't get it, could you just raise your hand? And I actually forgot to grab some too, so go, on and, go ahead and, on and bring it up here. If you missed it on the way in, raise your hand. Am I the only one? <laughs> oh, man. Thank you. Oh, gosh. It's a great start to a new year when I'm the only one who misses it. (laughs) Taking communion was never meant to be a ritual, but rather a relational worship experience that helps us align ourselves with the reality of what Christ has done for us and who he is to us right now today. How God is here today changing our hearts and our motivations to live freely in him and bring his kingdom more and more into our world. Scripture says Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks for it and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, the bread is the symbol that he wants to be so close to us. He wanted us to know that he wants us to be that close. So go ahead and receive the bread. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It it represents God's work of forgiving you and his commitment the price he paid to make you his children, full heirs of everything that he is. Let's go ahead and take the cup. Lord, I stand before you today and I just express my need for you to reshape my emotions and my thoughts with your gospel. And I pray that same thing for each and every one of us. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would abide with us in a way that this year we catch those negative emotions, those negative attitudes, and we just surrender to them to you and you reshape us so that we can live life to the full from this place of contentment and joy and peace and even excitement about what you have planned for us. And Lord, we pray that that same power that you give us through your Holy Spirit would be shared freely with us to others. That our community would no longer cancel people, but we would all learn to love like you love. So Lord, now as we stand to give our voices and in song to worship to you, would you just receive our praise and would you come and inhabit this place with your presence? In Jesus' name.
We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.